this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Content Director with the Association for Corporate Growth. Our discussion today is going to focus on employment practices liability and the risk this poses to mid-market companies. It's an area that's become more complex to navigate in the era of Me Too and the awareness that movement has raised about discrimination and harassment in the workplace. Added to that is remote work and rules that vary by state, and this has just become a very complicated arena to navigate. So we will go deeper into all of that today with my guests, Eden Stark, Vice President, Claims Leader for Employment Practices Liability at QBE North America, and Mary Ann Mullen, Senior Vice President, Fiduciary and Employment Practices Liability Leader, also with QBE. QBE is also the sponsor of today's episode. Eden and Marianne, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So you both bring really deep experience and interesting perspectives to this topic. So I wanted to start by asking you each to just tell us a little bit about your background and your role at QBE. Eden, you want to take that first? Absolutely. Thank you again for having us. Um, I am an employment practice lead at QBE, which in sum and substance means I review all of the employment practice liability claims coming in and work directly with the underwriters and brokers to ensure our clients have the proper coverage, their claims are managed and handled properly, and I handle the high severity claims, which might lead to you know, larger awards or some possible publicity are more sensitive. Um, Prior to working in insurance, I was a employment practice attorney, a trial attorney in New York, and I worked for both plaintiffs and defendants at various times in my career. And thereafter, I was a general counsel for a mid-sized middle market company in New York. Um, So my real love of being in this role is because I truly have an understanding of the pain points of employment litigation for plaintiffs, defendants, and our insureds to help resolve and also mitigate risk. And then Marianne, what about you? Tell us a little bit about your background and your your current role. My role is described as the EPL product lead, although unlike Eden, my focus is more on the underwriting of the policies. So My job really is to make sure we're on top of all the legal and social trends that are impacting employment practices, insurance policies, make sure our underwriters are aware of all that, make sure our product is evolving to address all those concerns and to be as responsive as we can to our insureds. I joined in uh, March of this year, QBE. Prior to that, I worked for a very large broker. So that gave me a perspective on what our insurance really are looking for in terms of the coverage. I was there for four years. Prior to that, I worked as a mediator and many EPL claims are resolved via mediation as opposed to going to trial. So that was fascinating in terms of seeing how the plaintiffs and the uh, defendants and the mediators all interact. And then I was with the various carriers before that, um, running management liability claim departments, which is sort of the umbrella for all employment practices related claims and, and policies. So you both, you know, have extensive experience in this area. You know, having worked in this field for a long time, how have you seen employment practices liability risk evolve over the years? I'd say if I started in the mid 80s and there was no EPL policy, then there was no product. Um, 
there was a DNO policy, directors and officers liability policy, and that was not ever intended to cover employment practices claims. But as they sort of evolved and they were trying to be shoehorned into the DNO, the industry came up with this product. So it was about 1990 that it started. And I think it was somewhat in reaction to the Americans with Disabilities Act, which started a whole new genre of claims. It started out really for large public companies, the policies, and they had very large retentions, and it has evolved into coverage for a whole penalty of any kind of employment-related acts with much smaller deductibles and meant to be, as opposed to catastrophic insurance, meant to respond to your day-to-day sort of employment-related issues. And I would say exactly the law mirrored the insurance coverage, or actually insurance lagged a little bit, right? So in general, EPL, in my humble opinion, um, probably responds to the changes in society as a whole at the highest and most heightened level of law. There is that interaction to what are society standards, what's acceptable in the workplace, right? Then once that comes into play, the law reacts and expands, whether it be what we're seeing today, which is expanding statute limitations for sexual assault, um, higher requirements for employers regarding disability leave and accommodations. And then it has to disseminate down to the actual workers and the, the management and how do they adjust their behavior. And the middle market is such an interesting space because people are working really hard to run their middle-sized business, right? And a lot of times they don't have that luxury to be on top of all these trends and these changes and disseminate that. So we see it evolve very frequently, both on a federal, state, and local level. So I would say, since I've been in practice, I've probably seen thousands of new laws added, changed, or modified. It's happening this week, right? Or this month, because in November, New York City pay equity laws went into effect where employers have to post a salary range when they're advertising for a job. That's in New York, but it's also in several other states. And so that has led to a whole flurry of questions from our clients about, is this covered? Is it? Can we get it covered? How do we deal with this? How do we respond to this? Are there any suggestions about how to post our job openings? And so that sort of brings in the risk management provisions that we provide, but it's also a, you know, extremely current example of how the policy responds and evolves to respond to changes in the law. And so as the legal and regulatory landscape has shifted, the social landscape has obviously changed quite a bit. Are you also seeing an an increase in claims in in recent years? I could speak to that. We track and the industry tracks claims, the general filings that are public are not sufficient to fully get the entire picture. As I spoke about in the beginning, employment practice is a very um, sensitive area of law oftentimes with very personal issues, sexual harassment, race discrimination. uh, And we see a flurry of activity on the, what we call the demand stage, where there is basically a letter stating this is what occurred what are we going to do about it? So we can't fully capture the entire picture. 
they have steadily increased on the federal and state agency levels over the year with the caveat of the shutdown and pandemic, which we did see it tapering off. We can hypothesize to why people were remote, people were busy, the courts were shut down, people had a lot on their minds um, and weren't thinking of running to the courthouse steps. Um, but overall, if you're looking at that curve, as the laws expand, as the sensitivities increase, as social media is out there and people are learning more about their rights, about their employers' responsibilities, we have consistently seen um, an uptick in claims. And going back to Marianne's initial statement, which is why this product was developed for middle market, which never had it before. Nobody worried about it. And then starting in the 90s, we really started to begin to see employees asserting more claims in that middle market space. It's interesting because insurers look at their claims in two ways. One is frequency. So have the number of lawsuits or claims, which is a defined term in the policy, but we'll just use it generically. Have they increased? But we also look at severity and that means the settlement amounts. How much do we pay, the insurers pay in both defense costs and in the settlements or verdicts. And as I mentioned before, not that many cases go to trial, but to the extent they do do. And we have seen a steadily steady increase in defense costs, not just because of hourly rates increasing, but that is a factor, but it's also that electronic discovery, for instance, has made defending cases much more expensive. And sometimes it's hard to judge severity because there's a confidentiality component to a lot of settlements. But I can tell you when I was working as a broker in October of 2017, which is when um, the Harvey Weinstein um, stories broke, and we saw a dramatic increase in demands to settle um, anything that was involving sexual harassment and any, for instance, lawsuit that was already in the door that maybe had a sexual harassment component, but it wasn't the major part of the claim became the major part of the claim. And there was a total shift in emphasis. And then there was just a real hardening on the plaintiff's parts about settlement and the numbers started to increase. Again, harder to give you specific numbers because of the confidentiality part of that, but we can say anecdotally that that's an example of changing in the law, really changing in society, impacting directly the amount of money that were paid under employment insurance policies. And the employment risk challenges that make headlines tend to be at big companies, especially recently. We've heard a lot about Twitter um, and some of their HR and employment related decisions. But you reference the middle market. And of course, they're going to have a unique set of, of challenges and risks. Can you talk about how they compare to their larger peers and and why this might be an acute challenge for them relative to larger companies like is it is it a question of resources is it something else yeah i think we see the headlines right we see twitter we see a, a, a large company a publicly traded company hit the paper um, that in itself generates buzz throughout society right so interestingly those headlines, now people pick it up and they're looking at their work experience laid up against what these allegations are and recognize perhaps some of these behaviors that are identified as problematic and have generated this lawsuit. So it's no 
shortage of lawsuits in the middle market space. And in fact, I would say the frequency is probably significantly higher because there aren't the safeguards and the policies and procedures in those companies to the extent mm -hmm. you're looking at a multi-billion dollar company, right? They have white shoe employment lawyers on retainer. They have ironclad agreements. They have trainings. Everything is documented. When I referenced earlier, I worked for a middle-sized company and it's a struggle. It's a struggle to have the funds and the resources. HR professionals are not always have the resources, the time, the money, the ability to learn and be educated and then disseminate it. If you have the policy, is it properly getting put down and disseminated into your workforce? Is it sitting in their desk drawer? And then if something does happen, are they able to utilize those resources without fear of retribution because it's a smaller company and perhaps my you know, potential harasser is my boss or is in HR and we're all working together by the water cooler. So I do think there is a really, really unique set of issues that middle market faces. And I would arguably say it's a much more uphill battle than a larger company who's really well suited from its inception to handle this. Middle market is like, learn as we go, we see a lot. And that's where we really try to partner and identify issues as perhaps claims come in or through the renewal process of areas that perhaps need some work, need some training, need some adjustment. Human behavior is human behavior. And <laughs> if you work at a Fortune 20 company or if you work at a small or middle market company, the same kinds of events can occur what can help you prevent them from occurring in the first place to the extent that we can control human behavior is training. And we have found that there, there can be less of an emphasis on training at smaller companies or middle market companies. There's a less robust HR department, less robust manuals, less access to experienced law firms who can provide that serve, those services. That's one of the things that we focus on in underwriting are, is risk management. So for instance, we have a policy that provides a hotline for our insureds to utilize, which uh, directs them, uh, connects them to a law firm. So they can ask a couple questions about, you know, how they should proceed in a particular situation. There's access to manuals and we can have folks come in and do training for them. Our society is such that you can't prevent lawsuits, but you can um, provide a very good defense to some lawsuits. And one of those great defenses is to show that you uh, have provided training to your employees to make them aware of, for instance, harassment issues. So that you can say to the court, to the jury, to whoever, you know, we've tried to prevent this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good defense for our insurance. I, I sit with the insurance in once this has happened to them, right? They have now been sued and they have been accused of wrongdoing. And we work together to try to come up with a resolution strategy, which often, you know, is a teamwork with defense counsel and myself and the insured. And I have these really, you know, meaningful conversations that very well-intended employers find themselves in a sticky situation. I recently had a call where somebody couldn't understand that it was a technical violation, meaning say it was a wage an hour, or it was a failure to what we call engage in the interactive process for a disability claim. 
And they really tried to do everything right. It was a small business. They knew the person. They liked the person. And at the end of the day, they kept saying, but it's a technical, it's just so little. I just didn't dot that last I. And it's our job to communicate with them. Unfortunately, that opens you up to liability, right? And now we're looking at defense costs. We're looking at interruption of business in the world of social media and in the fear of our insurance being canceled for doing something wrong and getting out there and spreading and group texts and Instagram. It's it, There are a lot of pitfalls. So as Marianne was saying, in order to prevent that, it's all about getting ahead of it. It's all about having somebody there utilizing our systems you know, to review um, your policies, to just pick up the phone and talk to your attorneys, HR, your insurance carrier, and really be proactive. It seems like in especially the high profile cases, so much of this gets chalked up to nefarious intentions on the part of the employer, corporate greed. But it sounds like you're saying, Eden, that you might mean well. And if you just miss something or you don't know what you don't know, you can end up in a, a sticky situation. I would say that's probably more of the case than the nefarious situations. Those aren't as frequent. Can be even the employer has meant to be good about something, meant <laughs> to be go out of their way to accommodate an employee who should probably no longer be at the company or their intentions were actually even positive or, you know, they didn't document a file in HR where they should have because they didn't want to give somebody a bad review. None of that is evil intention. All of that is trying to care for their workforce. Uh, and unfortunately, it has legal consequences at the end of the day. And a lot of our listeners will be coming from a, a mergers and acquisitions background, which we know at times that's a process that can be pretty bumpy as far as integrating and, and merging two companies goes. Um, so I'm curious whether you see any of the risks that we've been talking about emerge out of an M&A transaction and whether there's any specific pitfalls you tend to see companies fall into during or right after a deal. We do see mergers of workforces can be um, very difficult from a cultural standpoint. So two companies can merge who have diametrically opposed cultures. So how does that work in an integrated workforce and how, how does management handle that? And if they handle it badly, could there be lawsuits arising from employees who felt they, their rights were denied? Not to mention there generally are a series of layoffs for redundant employees when companies emerge. To the extent that those employees haven't signed waivers, um, they can sue for wrongful terminations. I was on vacation this summer and I met a woman who has a law degree and has her MBA and has her PhD in psychology. She um, is hired by companies that are merging or acquiring another company and does a psychological profile of all of the employee workforce and then provides a report to management telling them how likely it is that the cultures will merge or meld or if one culture is dominant and the other has to subsume. And I think that's just so fascinating. And it's something I'm not sure how much companies think about it beyond just the numbers when they're acquiring another company, but the workforces have to be able to feel like they're a part of one company at some point. Otherwise, lawsuits will ensue. 
Right. And we see it, it's again because employment law is such a personal part of law. As I said, I, when I try to explain it to people, I said, someone like hits me with their car. They don't know me, right? They did, they made a mistake. Even if they were a jerk and tried to, I, I still, they don't know me. But if you are an embroiled in employment litigation, that's your coworker, that's your boss, that's your friend. That's you were at Christmas parties together. You sent them a wedding gift. Maybe you were at the wedding. It becomes really, really personal. And when you have, as Marianne really hit the nail on the head, you have different cultures coming into play. And then there's that perception of favoritism, perhaps. Maybe the purchasing company, their employees are, are favorites and they're going to stay. They're not going to be the one chosen for layoffs. And the plaintiff's bar takes what you could see as an innocuous situation, right? Like we had to lay people off and they really look into it. You know, was it a majority of women that were laid off? What is the workers over 40 years old laid off? Was there a complaint made by these folks in the past and they deem them as troublemakers? So it is really ripe for employment litigation. And again, I think the advice would be to absolutely, whether you can afford to hire a consultant, that would be ideal. But if not, to really work, for example, with your carrier, you know, and talk about them. This is what we're going into. Like, wh what are the pitfalls? What should we book looking at? Um, to work with your HR departments, to really understand your population and communicate, communicate, communicate. Why? Put it in writing. Why are we making these employment decisions? Why is this person being laid off? Why is this department being shut down? And seeing those documentations to support them. So there is no thought of some sort of discriminatory intent in the action. We've been talking a lot about the employment liability risk environment and why this is an area of concern. And you both have touched on some of the things that business leaders can do. But I, I want to go back to that and hear your thoughts on ways that they can be proactive in mitigating risk. It's somewhat of a fine line because we are not, although we are lawyers, we don't give legal advice. And so we have to be very careful about that. But the kinds of things that we look at when we're underwriting are, for instance, currently, we always ask how many employees are working in an office and how many employees are remote. And, and mm. a new question in the last two years, because that, that, that gate for us, we can gauge exposure. So one would think the less employees in an office, the less claims that can come out of that. But it's not necessarily true. We have come to find out because there's other ways to offend and harass people other than being in their physical presence. We always look at jurisdiction. So how many employees do you have in certain states that can be the location of, for instance, higher settlement values? Uh, we always ask about the gender disparity in certain levels of employment. These are the kind of questions that we ask that would lead an insured to understand what our concerns are and to focus on those. We often ask if they already have a law firm in mind in case they are sued. We'd like to know that ahead of time. And that's the kind of thing we will discuss with a potential insured. Um, do they know firms that do a lot of wrongful termination defense work? Is it a different firm than is advising you to take the action that has resulted in the lawsuit? Is it somebody on the board's brother-in-law? Do they have a whole lot of real EPL related experience behind them because that's really a crucial the defending of the lawsuit is just so crucial to the success. So that's one of the things that we discuss fairly in depth with our with our insureds. 
And I would say from the claim side, well, nobody wants to have a claim, right? It is the opportunity to sort of pull back the layers and to have that open communication, right? To discuss, as we just talked about, my very well-intended insured did not mean to you know, run afoul of a statute, but did. So those are great opportunities to work and collaborate with our insureds directly about those type of issues. So this event occurred, it resulted in this litigation or this charge and filing. Why did this happen? Was it a policy? Was it an interpersonal issue? Again, the documentation and working through that and learning from it to prevent loss and risk in the future. If you have a policy that just on its face runs afoul of a law, then you learn about it through a claim and you change it um, and you continually have those. And making that connectivity with, as Marianne said, the defense counsel, because at that point, now they're actually talking to the defense counsel. And that's a great opportunity for them to now have a larger dialogue about what their sort of risk profile looks like based upon their business, their business needs, their policies. One of the things we like to discuss also, speaking of risk profile, is a corporate philosophy about responding to litigation. So hmm. there are some companies who believe it is in their best interest to settle all of their EPL-related lawsuits as soon as they get in. They don't want to go through discovery. They don't want to spend the time or money. They don't want to take time away from their executives' busy days. They just want to get rid of them. Um, Sometimes that's to prevent publicity, and sometimes it's just sort of the philosophy. There are other companies that are determined to take a case to trial because they are going to prove that they uh, did not do the thing that they are accused of doing. And they also believe it will prevent similar copycat type lawsuits. Both are equally valid philosophies and, you know, insureds have reasons for those. What is more difficult is the, we are never going to settle. Uh, We are going to take this to trial philosophy. And then something happens in discovery and there's some bad memo that shows up or bad deposition. And then they want to settle right away. That's harder for us to sort of gauge our exposure on that. And it it makes for a rockier sort of process. So not that that is written in stone by any of our clients, but we sort of, it's interesting and helpful for us to have a general idea of, of how the company likes to approach litigation. And when developing that corporate philosophy, is that something you recommend the company collaborate with its insurance partners on? Or is it more you just want to be aware of it so that you understand where they're coming from? I don't think that's a We don't collaborate on their philosophy about settling. We would like to know about it and then we will respond. It's their choice um, for the most part. But we'd like to know that. And then you sort of develop your defense strategy in conjunction with defense counsel and Eden to determine how to respond. It benefits our clients to collaborate with us in their defense because Eden sees hundreds and hundreds of these cases. And hopefully our insurance haven't seen more than one or two. And so her experience can come into play. And we have the same goal, which is to resolve the case for the smallest amount of money and other damages possible. And so we really look to have a collaborative relationship with our insurance from the minute we underwrite it and till the claim is resolved. And that's one of the reasons why Eden and I work closely together and she works with all the underwriters closely together so that the product that we sell is the product that she adjusts that the claims respond to. And it's one 
you know, it's one face to our client and it's one where that we're hoping is a partnership for them and for us for, uh, you know, many years. And I think that's a great point because again, back to now I have the claim, right? Now it's here. That's why this middle market space, it's so important for them to be surrounded by their business partners that are really there to support it and have that depth of expertise. Because this is the time, you know, so many people are so surprised when I tell them just to get through a motion to dismiss could be $25,000 in legal fees, just that alone. And should you go all the way to trial? Six figures, 100,000, 200, depending on jurisdiction, more depending on complexity, and then fee shifting, should there be an adverse award, many of the employment statutes, we pick up the plaintiff's fees, and they have no idea how expensive it is to litigate a matter. So maybe during their philosophy, their corporate philosophy initially would be, let's just fight it, we did nothing wrong. This is what we want to do. We don't want to attract any more lawsuits. But once we start having that conversation to sort of assess the total exposure, it can shift. So we really do like to be seen sort of as trusted advisors, you know, partners in risk, working to educate them, our insureds to, you know, basically resolve a difficult situation as easily and cost-effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. And I guess to that point, maybe we'll end on this, um, you know, is is there one thing that you would want a listener of this conversation to take away, either in terms of how they're thinking about their own liability risk or how they're viewing, you know, the EPL coverage? What's one thing you would you would want someone to walk away from this with? I would say no matter how good your employees are and how well-intentioned all your management is, this can happen to you. You can be the subject of an employment practices lawsuit. Um, You don't even have to have done anything wrong uh, or you could, as Eden referred to, have some minor technical violation. I mean, that's just how our system works. You can get sued. And so you are well served to have systems in place that will provide a good defense for you. So you need to have training, you need to have documented your files, you need to have an awareness in your companies about what the laws are to protect employees and seriously consider purchasing employment practices liability insurance. I would absolutely echo that. And just to circle back with, just really look at your business partners, you know, take a look at your, if it's a third party HR system or who are they? What's their expertise level? Your insurance carrier. Do I have a carrier who has dedicated experts in that field and resources, defense firms, attorneys that you trust and not a neighbor that you know happens to do real estate closings um, and utilize that, that sort of support system that you build yourself to get in place all of the policies and procedures that would help you defend should something arise. Great. Well, I feel like we could have a a whole other 30-minute continuation of this because it's such a fascinating topic. But for today, we'll leave it there. Eden and Marianne, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard today, please give us a rating and write a review. 
It really does go a long way in helping other listeners find out about us. This podcast is produced by the Association for Corporate Growth, the largest membership association for middle market M&A and corporate growth professionals. We host networking events across the world. We publish magazines and special reports and much, much more. Learn more about the benefits of membership at acg.org and consider joining us as a member. Last thing, if there is a topic you want to hear us talk about on this podcast, a guest you think would be great, or even if you just have some general feedback you want to share, we would love to hear about it. Please send us a note to editor at acg.org. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.